All right. Good morning, church. Hey, I just uh, I wanted to just give a couple notes on uh, a, co- a couple of announcements. What we got going on next weekend? Just real quick, just in the, in addition to what Rob was saying. So yes, the finanza next Saturday. Um, I wanted to just give a little bit of, of insight into that. Like, in, we, so we our building exists within the Royal Heights neighborhood, and in the Royal Heights neighborhood, there are four churches, including us. And there are 1,226 homes that are considered to be in the Royal Heights neighborhood. Rooted Church is not the solo answer to for the lost coming to know Christ in the neighborhood that we live in. If you haven't noticed our parking situation, we're really not game for 1,226 households. And so uh, we recognize and want to partner with part of what God has led us in is kind of as a church, we've tried to lead the way in the local church coming together. And so by God's grace, like pastors who didn't know each other over a decade now know each other and the church is working together. And so we're doing this, we're throwing this party for the neighborhood in conjunction with the three other churches in our community. And so, uh, one, we want to continue to pray that God would build that. Like, we care about churches being revitalized and churches being planted because we're not the answer to the lost in this community coming to know Christ by ourselves. And this is kind of a part of that. So we, the four, us four churches came together to throw the community Easter egg hunt, and we were blessed to have a couple hundred neighbors show up, and uh, we trust this will be about the same. So uh, just come. We not only uh, want to, we, we, we want to enjoy time together as family, but we also want to know our brothers and sisters who are a part of other churches that declare the name of Jesus, and uh, as well as to get to know the people that live here in this community. So come Saturday. It's going to be a good time. Uh, the pastor at Royal Heights Baptist Church has has legitimately become a, a dear friend of mine. Now, he's a bivocational pastor who is a certified fireworks. Like, he does fireworks full-time. He's a talented guy. He does a lot of the shows in town, and uh, he's going to do this show. So it's going to be really good. And then I wanted to talk about Sunday for just a minute. I want to just kind of share a little bit of my heart behind this coming Shalom Sunday. So for Shalom Sunday, we're having Fostering Hope come. And Fostering Hope is going to come. There's also going to be somebody from Missouri Baptist uh, that's going to come. And they're just, they're just going to share about the need in our community and what the church can do. And then we're going to spend some time praying uh, for them. Like many of you, this week I, uh, you know, I heard the news, I read the news about uh, the, the bill that's going forward in Missouri, that uh, they're one of the really just most robust pro-life bills in the country is, is in the process of moving through, uh, just moved through the Missouri House of Representatives. And when I, when I heard that, I had really two kind of reactions at the same time. The one, the prevailing emotion, was just rejoicing, like, praise God. That those that, that, that the hope that there is for these these children that haven't had access, haven't had the right, been seen as having the right to life, that they might have the right to life. As a as somebody who became a father through adoption and who's um, who, who's seen biological mothers who could have easily been justified by the world's standards and having abortion, like I I can never accept that like those kids had the choice of whether my kids today were here or not. I I can't. So I rejoice at that news. But I also felt this other emotion, like I felt just a real deep sense of, of urgency on behalf of the local church. All throughout the day and all throughout the weekend, I see all these Facebook posts, the church is rejoicing as they should. But I hope and my prayer is that with that rejoicing is a call to action. That the church, like the church can't just scream pro-life from the rooftops. We better be ready to stand in the gap as this kind of legislation goes forward. Like, this isn't going to change 
the number of people in dire situations who, who, cons- who consider abortion. Like, that's, that's not going to change. If we are going to be pro-life as a church, we better be ready once those children are born to still be just as adamant as we were before. And so that is what really next Sunday is about. Um, it's not about like every, it's not like that everybody's meant to be a foster parent or everybody's meant to adopt, but the church and everybody in the church can do something for the children in our community who are in need and who are born into difficult situations. We can't be pro-life if we are not also pro-young single mother who is struggling, if we are not also pro-foster parent, if we are not also pro-adoption. Like we have, that all has to go together or we're just, or, or we're just shouting aimlessly. And so uh, next week, uh, Fostering Hope is a, is a Christian organization that they've been a blessing in my life, and uh, they're going to come, and they're just going to share, like, church, here's what you can do. Here's what you have to do, because the number of kids in need is only going to go up, which is absolutely worth it, but we just have, like, by God's grace, we get to step into that as the church and be what God's called us to be. And so... Um, like next week's not next Sunday is not a Sunday off. We're going to come together and we're going to worship uh, through prayer and through seeking the good of the children in our community and just wrestling with what, how God's calling us to intervene and, and to be a part of that. So I'm really excited about next week and all of that to say. Today, uh, we're going to be ending our Galatians series. So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And this is going to be Paul just kind of wrapping up this letter, uh, this long emotional letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, who was beginning to struggle. with. They were kind of being misled by false teachers that the gospel is Jesus plus obedience to the law. And so Paul, for six chapters, has just been just ferociously reining them back in that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. And so today um, in verses 11 through 18, he's going to seek to drive that home. So I'm going to read those verses and then I'll pray for our time and we'll get going. Verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Lord, thank you for this day and just uh, for the opportunity to gather together as, uh, as your children, Lord, and uh, just to, to hear um, your, your words of instruction and counsel and just loving guidance to us, Lord. Um, I pray uh, that we would, would see and hear the gospel this morning and that it would uh, just affect our hearts, Lord, that you would uh, just conform us to your image, make us more like you. Holy Spirit, would you do that? There's nothing um, that, uh, there's no way for us to just make that happen. We are dependent on you. So we ask you to come and move and uh, just make us more like you. I love you and uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to come and, and, and gather together for your glory. I pray these things in your good name. Amen.
So we start off in verse 11. And verse 11 is kind of a peculiar verse. Again, every once in a while, Paul seems to just throw in a random verse that doesn't seem to really fit with the context. In verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So in Paul's day, it was customary, even for Paul, to dictate a large majority of letter writing to kind of a secretary of sorts. That he would, he would often communicate, kind of think of a scribe, and so he would, he would often dictate a lot of this. But then it was, it was fairly common, and this is what's happening here, for him to personally write a short portion, just a, a short portion at the end. And this was to do two things. One, it was to authenticate the letter to show this really is me. And then two, it was just to kind of add that personal touch, okay? So think of, yeah, think of like Paul designs a greeting card and then he writes his little personal message that he's dictated this letter to be written, but this part he wrote himself. And he's, he's telling them that. Some people, there, there are a couple different theories. Some um, commentators believe that Paul, he, Paul's getting a little older, Paul's written, writing Galatians probably in his 50s. And so some people think that maybe Paul's eyesight's going and he just can't read or write small lettering. But I think the other theory, and what I believe is probably more, um, seems to make more sense, is that Paul is just really wanting to drive home and add emphasis to this last portion of his letter. John Stott agrees with this view. He wrote, most commentators consider that he used large letters deliberately, either because he was treating his children, his readers like children, or simply for emphasis. Much as we would use capital letters to underline or, or, or like, much like we would have capital letters or we would underline a text today. So he really wants to drive home this last part. Pay attention here. And then he says this. This is what he wants them to pay attention to. Starting in verse 12 and then 13, it says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For the, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so Paul wants the church to understand. He wants to drive home here at the end. These legalists that I have been warning you about, that Paul declares are preaching a false gospel. He says like their motivation is not what they portray. He wants these young Christians to understand like their motivation seems like it's for your good, but it's not for your good. Paul saw through their deception because he came from them. Like he understands legalism more than most. Like this is where he came from. And he's now been rescued by the gospel and wants to help clarify what's really happening in the hearts of these people to these folks who have also been saved by the gospel. He wants them to understand that the legalists' motive are really self-serving. They desired the honor and glory that was associated with performance. Even if they didn't know that was their heart, Paul's able to see through what they even think about themselves and just see that at the root, they wanted the honor and glory that came with obtaining their own righteousness. They wanted the Galatians to be circumcised so that they could wear the submission of these Gentiles as kind of a badge of honor. They're wanting to just continue to justify themselves. And if they can get these Gentiles to believe what they believe, then they continue to reinforce and justify what they believe in their own hearts. And there's a really important term here. It says um, in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, flesh who would force you to be circumcised. That term, force you, is important in understanding what Paul's trying to drive home here. There was nothing wrong with a Gentile being circumcised. 
Okay, like Paul has said that over and over again. That was Jewish custom. There was a time where God demanded that uh, before Christ. And so Paul's saying, like, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. But there was everything wrong with a Gentile being circumcised because he was being forced to, believing that that gave him some, some right to stand before God. Like there was everything wrong with believing that it was the law of Moses that gave him right standing before God. It's important to understand this distinction because legalism is often based around things that are are really good things by themselves. Like many of our traditions, many of the things that we associate, the works that we can attach to the gospel aren't bad works. Like nobody's going out and saying, Jesus plus put that pole in your front yard, that gee, like to put the idol statue in your front yard. Like that's that's not usually how it works. It's it's things that would be good and are good things, but they're not allowed to be attached to the gospel. Okay? I experienced this as a young pastor in my early 20s of a little church where um, the biggest like legalistic battle in the church was this love for the wood paneling in the sanctuary. Okay, It was cheap wood paneling, but we called it, it was regularly referred to as the woodwork. Okay, And I, like, I, I kid you not, and, and for, the, for, the, for the love of everything good, we could not put paint on the woodwork. Wood paneling is not a bad thing. If that's your jam, like that's cool. But, but, but ultimately, when we take things that are good and we attach them to the gospel, like this is even, even more serious than the woodwork. Paul's not talking about tradition. He's talking about a group of people who have attached obedience to the law as being a requirement for salvation. And he is continuing to remind the church salvation comes from Christ and Christ alone. And he says this about these folks. He says, he, he, he points out that they were willing to lead others astray as opposed to facing the truth of the gospel. They didn't want, it says they didn't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They feared being persecuted. And he's likely talking about from other legalists, that others within the Jewish community, like if they were to change their views, if they were to accept the gospel as grace and grace alone, they would, expl- they would get intense persecution from those from whom they came from. And, uh, and ultimately, Paul's pointing out that their unwillingness to stand in the face of this pressure is what makes them stand for and accept this false doctrine. The, the, the gospel is offensive. And Paul can like Paul makes no bones about that. He doesn't avoid that. The offense of the gospel is real, and to be a disciple is to face the opposition from both sides because of the offense of the gospel. Both the world and the legalist will be offended by the truth of the gospel. For the world, the gospel will always be an offense because it declares that sin is sin. And it demands death to self. Okay, like we live in a world where being who you really are is ultimately like like that's my uh, that's my justification. Like you need to identify how you were born and what you're about and who you really are, and then just d- embrace that at all costs. Like that's a justification for everything. Okay, but the Christian view, the the reality of Scripture is that like who I really am. Is is not is is not good in of itself. Like who I really am is is not good, and I don't want to just be who I really am. I want to be like Christ. 
I want to be a redeemed version of me, that I was born in sin. Like the scriptures say, in sin did my mother conceive me. I'm always like amazed when a Christian wants to make the argument to a sinner that, well, that's not how you were born. You weren't born that way. Of course you were. We were born with all kinds of sinful tendencies. Like, again, I've said it a hundred times, I never had to teach any of my kids to sin. As soon as they were physically able to rebel against God and all authority, they absolutely became the, showed the little pagans that they are, okay? Like, that's real. And I was the same way. We are, we are born in sin. That is our nature. And we're not called to just embrace that as our identity, but God offers us something different. Like in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we can become like him. And so to be a Christian is to acknowledge who I really am and to repent of it when my eyes are opened by Jesus and to seek to be as he is. Not because I have to earn his favor, but because he's shown me favor, because he's allowed me to see that who I really am isn't who I want to be, isn't who I'm called to be, and ultimately isn't good as he is good. So the world will, that, everything I just said is 100% offensive to the world outside of Christ, where being an individual, just accepting who we are and owning it and flying it from the rooftops as seen as the highest value, and, and it's not. And the gospel calls us to instead to die to self and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. While it's offensive, while the gospel is offensive to the world, it is equally, if not more, offensive to the legalist. The legalist is offended by one's dependence on Christ. To declare that all I have is due to Christ and is no way, in no way, a reflection of my achievement, this is the worst form of offense to one who views themselves more highly than they ought. You see, like the opposite of the person who just accepts the world's view, like we see the person who they're, they're intrigued by grace, the doctrine that like religion gives them power, but they want to take the world's view and, and attach it to religion. And so it, it looks like it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, but it's really rooted in the same sin that I desire to achieve on, by my own performance, that I want to be known by who I am and what I have accomplished. Both of these are opposed to the gospel. The gospel is my, my identity, my righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone. And Paul points out that even these people who are circumcised, he's saying even these super religious legalists who are circumcised, they don't keep the law themselves. It's like Paul's telling the church a little secret, like, hey, just so you know, they're not even really doing the things that they're telling you you should do. Okay, the, the legalist, the performance-driven the performance Christian lives a life of constant hiding. This produces either, one, a false view of self. They either truly begin to believe that they, that they are earning their own righteousness, or they live in constant insecurity always kind of hiding who they are, always seeking, hoping that no one will find out. To be a gospel people is to live a life of freedom. To be a gospel people means no more hiding because Christ already took care of that. That I can stand here from the stage and I can be real about my shortcomings. I can be real about my seasons of doubt. I can be real about being just tired and sometimes not wanting to move forward. Like we can be real about who we are because of who Christ is. And 
Like, this is what Paul's calling the church to. Away from legalism that causes you to hide and, and a life of insecurity. Instead, come and let's acknowledge who we really are and acknowledge how much we equally need Jesus each and every day. And then in verses 14 through 16, Paul says this. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul's heart cared nothing for the glory that came from fame. Paul's heart cared nothing for the security that came from money. He cared nothing for the glory that came from status. He cared nothing about comfort. He cared nothing about the glory that came from feeling like he had status or power amongst men. He only cared about the glory of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had had come to that place where his sole fixation was Jesus Christ and his glory. I remember once, uh, I remember one time hearing an interview with Matt Chandler where he was talking about the first time he met John Piper and he remembered being like so caught off guard by this guy. He's like, this guy didn't even know who Peyton Manning was. Like he thought he was one of the prophets. Like he only knew, like if it wasn't about Jesus, if it wasn't about God, like he didn't even know what you were talking about. Like he had come to a place in his life where as he matured in Christ, his focus was more and more, he knows, like Paul's saying, he knows nothing but Jesus, that the glory that comes from any other thing was not for him. And what Paul is saying here, like we, we can take, we can read this and it can kind of pass us by. But he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That like when Paul says, I am boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That would have been a bizarre term for the people that are listening. Like, that would have been crazy talk. For people who knew what the crucifixion was all about, the words cross and boast, like the idea of a cross and glory, like those don't even go together. That doesn't even mentally compute. They were direct opposites of one another because there was no more humiliating, degrading way, shameful way to die than to die on a cross. The truth is that like boasting in your performance, that that made way more sense. Like people can, and that's why there's a draw to legalism because it makes sense. Like it's easy for my mind to compute If I do a good job, I can brag about that job. I can feel good about that. Like, people get that. But what's coming from the kingdom, like what God is proclaiming through Paul, would have just been just people sitting there with this perplexed look on their face. Like, not the cross. There's no glory in the electric chair. What are you talking about? But Paul thinks and writes not with earthly wisdom, but from a kingdom perspective. The term crucifixion was unmentionable in Roman society. Even when one was condemned to death by crucifixion, they did not use in the sentencing the term crucifixion. They would say, Abori and Philippi suspendito, which means hang them on the unlucky tree. 
But Paul not only used this unmentionable word, he glorified in it. He says, I'm not only going to say this word that we don't talk about, I boast in it. Like, Paul's got this big smile on his face talking about the crucifixion, and people thought he was nuts. But Paul knew that what was meant for evil, the Lord used for good, and ultimately as a means of saving his people. On this verse, Charles Spurgeon once wrote this, What did he mean, however, by the cross? Of course he cared nothing for the particular piece of wood to which those blessed hands and feet were nailed, for that would be mere materialism and has perished out of mind. He means the glorious doctrine of justification, free justification through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul's boast is only in the justification granted to him through Jesus. And he says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If you remember back in Galatians chapter 5, Paul wrote about the desires of the flesh, and he said he ultimately painted this picture saying he had crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. But now with the, the flesh on the cross, Paul says he also puts the world on the cross, and he considers himself dead to the world. The world no longer had any influence on Paul, and Paul would not respond to any influence from it. He knows only Christ. And this reflects Christ's own words in Matthew 6, 24. Nobody can serve two masters, for either he will love one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. The world in the sense that Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about the literal global earth, or he's not even necessarily talking about the people in it, but he's talking about the community of sinful humanity that is in rebellion, rebellion against God, that ultimately, while Paul would give his life to serving them, to showing love to the world, he is no longer driven by the world. The world is not what calls him, shapes him, forms him, or motivates him, but only Christ. There is nothing more worldly than trying to prove myself by my own performance. When we live for the glory that comes from money, that comes from status, that comes from comfort, or from, or from power amongst men, we are alive to the world, and the world is very alive to us. And Paul said, like, no more. That was no longer who he was. And so I say that, like, asking you this question, not in a condemning way. I ask my, myself this, like, what, what drives you? What is it that you're living for? And would we be a people collectively praying that the answer to that by the power of the Spirit would solely be Jesus? Because anything else, and, 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 and we're living for a false idol. We're living for something that can never satisfy. We're living for something we weren't designed to live for. Martin Luther said on this text, Paul and the world could agree together on one thing. And that was they didn't really like each other. The world is crucified unto me means that I condemn the world. I am crucified unto the world means the, that the world in turn condemns me. It's not that Paul condemned the world by his words. I mean, make no mistake, he preached the truth of the gospel. But Paul gave his, his heart that the others, like he poured his life out that the world might know Jesus. 
but his life condemned the world. That, a, that like Paul was this picture of somebody that by the world's standards had everything. He had power, he had money, he had status, he, he had accomplished what, the, what most of the world could only dream of. And for Paul to leave all that behind and treat it as rubbish, like he literally calls it that. He says it was nothing. The world was, was greatly condemned and offended by that. How could that be? To live as a disciple of Jesus is to condemn the world by pointing to the kingdom to come and will we'll draw offense, and that's promised. And Charles Spurgeon said, like clarifying the difference between crucifying the world and, and still loving it, he says, to live to serve men is one thing. To live to bless them is another. And this we will do. God helping us, making sacrifices for their good. But to fear men, to ask their leave to thank, to ask their instructions as to how we shall speak or how we shall say it, this is a baseness we cannot brook. By the grace of God, we cannot be so degrading of ourselves and we never shall. That Paul loved the world and would pour himself out for it, but the world would no longer drive his life only Christ and the truth of God's word. We live in a place today where the church has to commit to that very thing. That, that ultimately the, the pressure of the world to conform to that which is more palatable to the self-serving tongue will only grow. We are called to follow only Christ and his word to be our law and our rule. And Paul says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For the legalists amongst the Galatians, circumcision was this big issue because they, uh, it was basically an, an invitation to live under the Mosaic law. Even though it was important to the legalists, Paul knew that it didn't matter at all. If you were circumcised, uh, but you're not a new creation, like if you were obedient to the law, but Christ hadn't transformed your heart, then you didn't belong to Jesus. But if Christ, if things really weren't the way they should be, if your life was kind of a mess, but your heart belonged to Jesus, then you're still his. And so Paul re realizes that like obedience to the law really isn't a picture at all. What is a picture is the heart of the one that has been transformed by Christ through the power of the Spirit. Like we, we don't like the person who has become a new creation. Paul says it's, you, you can't judge from the outside, but only have they been made new, have they been made a new creation through Jesus. That's not something we do ourselves. Only God can do that. Ultimately, Christianity is about what God has done, not what we do. To understand this is to honestly embrace who we are. And as many as walk according to this rule, Paul says, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. There is a rule for the Christian life. Paul is saying that's God's word. We don't just make it up as we go along, but it, always, it, it, is, it will always be as it is. Okay? God's word does not change. It doesn't, like, like the truth of what God calls us to, the truth of, of what holiness is, the truth of what sin is, that doesn't, like there's not a new edition of the Bible that comes out every hundred years or so to make a culture more comfortable. We live according to the word of God and the rule of God. 
And we're to measure ourselves according to this rule. And we don't measure ourselves to see if we measure up to God. Like when you were made, when you're made righteous in Christ, like that's it. You're, you, are, you are made righteous. When Christ takes hold of you and exchanges his righteousness for your sinfulness, like that's the end of the story. You are his. When God sees you, it's as if the perfect righteousness of Christ has been draped over you, okay? But we still, like we still wrestle with the flesh and we, we desire to live lives that more reflect the righteousness that we've been given. Not just, like we, we desire that for our good that we might be more like him and as he desires us to be. And so God's word is the measure of, upon which we can, we can look and see, like, is that happening in us? And Paul, say, Paul says, for those, peace and mercy be upon them. Just as Paul was with, like in Galatians chapter 1, Paul pronounces, like he's willing to pronounce a curse on those who preach a false gospel. Those who, in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, he is willing to pronounce a curse on those who are teaching this idea of Jesus plus obedience to the law. Kind of reflecting that, kind of like bringing this full circle here at the end, he's willing to give a blessing to those who walk according to this rule, that rule being the gospel, the truth that God gave his only son to, to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his, but only everlasting joy. Paul's saying, like, for those who live because of that, for those who have been transformed by that truth, for those who that truth guides all of their life, peace and blessing, peace and mercy be upon them, because these are those who are the true Israel of God, the descendants of Abraham according to faith. And then in verse 17, we're looking at the... Coming to the last couple verses here, at verse 17, he says this. Paul's going to get pretty real here. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Okay, like Paul's coming to the end of this letter. Paul, nobody knows for sure these ages that I'm spouting, but this is our best guess based off the history of the Bible. Paul was converted probably around 30 years old. When he's writing the book of Gal- to the, this letter to the Galatians, he's probably in his early 50s. And by our best estimates, he was probably around 60 when he died. Okay, so Paul's coming to the end of his road. Well, like, he's, he's tired. Like Paul's not a normal 50-year-old. Paul's a 50-year-old back then, and he's a 50-year-old who has, who has repeatedly woke up with blurry vision and nothing but a pile of rocks and blood around him. And then he gets up and goes on to the next city. So he, he's not a normal 50-year-old. He's been through some things. And uh, he wrote as someone who had suffered for Jesus. And he bore those marks on his body. Having suffered so, he can say now, like his, his, his appeal to the church is, let, let no one trouble me. And I, I, there's a lot of, di- there's different interpretations of what he's saying, but I believe that Paul is a tired apostle who is just, just becoming more, just each day is anticipating more and more being with Jesus. He's just saying to this young church, like, you guys got to pull it together, okay? Like leaders, you guys got to step, like church, step up. Church, follow, keep your gaze on Jesus. 
Don't try, like Paul knew that this would probably be one of his, this probably was his last interaction, even with this young church. And so his desire, like a parent who knows they won't be around much longer and wants more than nothing to know that their children will be safe and that their children will follow the right path, he's just pleading with them. Like, trouble me no more. Continue to look to Jesus. And it's an appeal to this entirety of the church. And I have to believe it's an appeal, like, even to the leaders to step up and lead and love these people, continuing to point them to Jesus. John Calvin on this verse said, For even as earthly warfare has its, decora- has its decorations with which generals honor the bravery of a soldier, So Christ, our leader, has his own marks, of which he makes good use in decorating and honoring some of his followers. These marks, however, are very different from the others, for they have the nature of the cross. And in the sight of the world, they are disgraceful. But before God and the angels, they surpass all of the honors of the world. When Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, he's saying, I'm I've been through the ringer in the name of Jesus. And in his case, he probably literally bore all kinds of scars and and internal injuries, and his body likely ached from what he had been been through for Jesus. But this isn't isn't just talking about that. Like to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of his, is to ensure that you will experience suffering. And that to follow Jesus is going to mean to follow him with internal scars. And you're going to experience hard in this world. If you invest in other people's lives, you're going to experience being betrayed. You're going to experience being hurt. To follow Jesus, like Paul, will be to experience and receive marks that are reflective of the marks that Christ bore for us. But Romans 8, when Paul writes Romans 8, he assures us that for those who are his, all things work together for good. That for those who are his, even our scars are meant to make us more like Jesus. That the promise for those who are his is that even the worst things in this life, God promises us, are intended, will be used to make us more like him. And then in the very last verse of the book of Galatians, Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This verse summarizes and is appropriate as it is Paul's just simple one sentence, great hope for the church. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Paul's ultimate hope for the church was this, that ultimately the grace of Jesus would be what drives them, that the spirit would continue to lead them in such a way. Because Paul knew that if this were so, they would continue to walk in a grace relationship with God instead of the legal performance-based relationship that was endangering the church. That, that came, much like the snake in the garden, legalism comes and it just, it just seems good and it looks good and it kind of on the surface is camouflaged to be something that it absolutely is not, which is a heretical doctrine. Paul wants the church to know, like his last word to the church is grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. William Barclay on this verse, after the storm and stress and intensity of the letter comes the peace of the benediction. Paul has argued and rebuked, but his last word to the church is grace. For him, that was the only word that really mattered. Ultimately, Paul's last word for the church 
in Galatia was grace. And it's his final word for us as his church today that Jesus plus nothing is the truth of the gospel. That if you are in Christ today, you are in Christ because he himself bore the weight of sin and shame that every shortcoming you would ever have, every single thought, every single poor motive, every single thing that stands on the opposite end of the spectrum from perfect holiness. Ultimately, Christ living life perfectly. He, he came putting on flesh and doing what we could not do, that ultimately he would be the perfect lamb and he bore the weight of all of our shortcomings for all of time. All of the church that had gone before and all of the church that is still yet to come. Christ bore that. And it's only through Christ's perfect righteousness that we are made righteous. To be a Christian means that we will stumble, we will fall, we will doubt we will need help with our doubt. We will, there will be times where the plea of our heart will be, help my unbelief. But ultimately, in him, we have eternal security as his because of who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf. If you are not in Christ this morning, I, I, I pray that, uh, that he would grab hold of you as only he could do and that the truth of his gospel would continue to draw you to himself. I want to uh, just close this morning with, uh, with a prayer uh, from the Valley of Vision in this regard. So um, I will uh, I'll read this and then enter into just kind of a closing prayer. Thou God, this, this prayer is called the Savior. Thou God of all grace, thou hast given me a Savior, produce in me a face to live by him, to make him all my desire, all my hope, and all my glory. May I enter him as my refuge, Build on him as my foundation. Walk in him as my way. Follow him as my guide. Conform to him as my example. Receive his instructions as my prophet. Rely on his intercessions as my high priest. Obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach. Never displease him by unholy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when rebuffed for a fault. Never make the multitude my model. Never delay when thy word invites me to advance. May the dear son preserve me from this present evil world so that its smiles will never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country, my title to it becoming daily more clear, my meekness for it more perfect, my foretastes of it more abundant, and whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name. Father, just again, Lord, I, I pray uh, that this would be true of us. Lord, I, uh, I pray that we would never make the multitude our model, but ultimately, at thy word, we would go where you called us to go, and uh, that we would, we would follow you before all else. Lord, I, uh, I pray that uh, we would be a people that reflect the country that is to come, that, uh, that we were created uh, for another place, and uh, we are merely pilgrims here on this earth for a time. Lord, would that, would that be true in our hearts? Would we know that to be true? Lord, I pray like Paul that you would uh, just build in us, increase in us a longing for, uh, for the world as it will one day be. 
And Lord, empower us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live as a reflection of that kingdom here and now, that the world might know you. Lord, would we lay down everything to follow you? God, would you make that so? Would you, uh, Lord, just, uh, would you just dissipate uh, the world's allure to our eyes? Lord, take that away, remove that, and would we just become more and more um, just, uh, just, just driven, just captivated by who you are? Lord, we need you to make that so. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will. We pray that you would do that in our church. I love you, and uh, I pray these things in your good name. Amen.